Welcome back to the Discovering Forestry podcast. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Corey. Alongside the star of the show, our friend, Joe Aiken. Here for another compelling conversation about trees. Joe, it's a good time of year. Yeah, you know it is. You know, Corey, but jumping on the podcast, chatting with you doesn't really matter what time of the year it is. I always really, truly look forward to it. So I know it's a good time, but then you put that icing on the cake, get to hang out with you and our and special guests on the podcast. It just, it just makes for a good night. It does. Maybe evening, get the fire. day or whenever you listen. Yeah. Get the fire going. Maybe yes, your head. Can you see it? The listeners can't see it, but I have a fake fire on my, my computer screen for the mood. Yeah, no, I like it, Joe. And this, this time of year, we've talked about this on past episodes. It's just great to take the time, take inventory, where are we at? What's new? What can we learn? What can we do better in the new year? And I can't think of anybody yeah. else I'd rather spend it with. So thanks, Joe. I, I love you. But stop, so stop I, we have a great guest tonight. And I wanted to set the stage um to get the listeners thinking before we before we introduce our guest is that it was out and about in the general public today and when i when i park the truck i don't like going out so i'm going to call it the human ecological experiment because we know that um in <clears throat> the experiment was is that when you go shopping for gifts um does the time of day dictate the organisms that you bump into? And does it change your experience? Mm. Think about that. So does the time of day affect the organisms, organisms, which were an organism, does it affect the population that you come in contact with it? Mm. And our listeners probably think I'm crazy, but it'll all make sense in a little bit. So well, I'm looking we'll think forward about to that. that. Yeah, I want to. I want to hear how you're going to tie that into our conversation today because I've known this organism, this PhD guest of ours, since it must have been 14 or 15, 2014, 2015. We met somewhere in the Midwest working for a tree company in Minneapolis. Uh, anyhow, she's gone on to do some pretty incredible things. So if it's okay with you, Joe, I'll bring our guest on and uh, we'll see where the conversation goes. So, oh, Most definitely. Please do. Yeah. So our guest tonight coming all the way currently from Wisconsin, which is a great state, probably one of the best. Uh, anyhow, her name is uh, Dr. Emily Bick, PhD, and she's going to give us a whole history on everything she's done to get to where she is and where she's going to go. So Emily, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on today. It's up. It's a, it's a pretty intimidating podcast and um, there's been demand for somebody that wants to geek out on insects. And I guess you've done a little bit of that, huh? I am a hundred percent the right person to geek out on insects. So, think, so t tell us about it. What, what's your history? How did you get into, how'd you get into bugs? How'd you get into bugs and trees? What, bring us up to date. Who are you? Definitely. Definitely. So 
currently I am an assistant professor at UW-Madison for precision pest ecology for field and forage crops. So nothing to do with trees necessarily, but some of the work that some of the sensors that we're developing right now definitely have some use cases with trees. So I'm excited to tie back in at that point. But I, I started the, the gateway insect for me was a mosquito, right? Think malaria, think, oh my goodness, I like being outside. This seems impactful, seems relevant for people. So I started doing some research on it, right? I started at Cornell, I started an entomology degree. I actually wasn't the best student along the way. I got a lot better at entomology, but the folks that enter entomology degrees tend to be really, really good at entomology or really passionate about it. I was really passionate about the impact between people and, and insects, right? Like just see the impact of, of insects on people. And then somewhere along the way, I was taking some course loads and realized that, you know, plants were also really interesting, more so than just as, as insect food, right? Which is almost entirely what I thought of them as. And I started doing some work outside, which is what I really love to do. And I ended up at uh, a company, are we allowed to name the company in the Midwest that we both worked at? <laughs> excellent, <laughs> excellent. So we both were working at this company in the Midwest and I was doing as an R&D project manager doing research for essentially the pesticide type company. Uh, and Corey was doing some amazing things, uh, essentially selling these pesticides to homeowners and I was developing them, right? Testing them out, seeing how they well they worked, whole range of things, really with an insect focus. And Corey kept trying to be my friend. I don't know if you remember <laughs> this story, Corey, but at some point there was a wolf spider that popped out of a clump of bananas. And I think your, your now wife, then girlfriend, you were really, you were like about to kill it with your shoe. She was standing on front of a couch, on top of a couch. And you went and you caught this thing and you brought it to my desk as like a, hey, let's be friends. Like, let's be buddies. Like, I want to learn about insects. Let's, let's interact over here. And I looked at it and was like, oh, that's a spider. That's not an insect. <laughs> That's so it's true. Like, it felt like your face just fell, right? <laughs> it's that so true. Yeah, you know you're you're a bug nerd then. Well, well, sorry, Corey, that is not an it's insect. It's an arachnid. It's an arachnid. It's, oh, it's an arachnid. It's I'm not a spider person. I'm really not a spider person. Oh, that's so too, funny. Too many legs, too many eyes, not enough wings. Whole thing. It's a whole thing. Yeah. So that was kind of an early stage, and I was always I was always fairly mathy as far as it comes down to it, right? I'd taken some computer science classes, a lot of math classes along the way. And I was exposed while well, well, working on trees, working on emerald ash borer. I mean, we, I think I'm still the first author for the longest running emerald ash borer study uh, to date in the world, which is awesome showing that, you know, you apply mecumbenzoate or metacloprid or dinotephron and you can get really good control over the course of seven, eight years or so. Just awesome. I mean, really good news for trees. Uh, on that side, but I learned something about that kind of tied in my mosquito background, that herd immunity concept where if you treat a certain percentage of a population, then you can get protection in the rest of the population. And it was actually a concept that was from medical entomology applied, or really medicine and epidemiology applied to trees, right? Where, where uh, Dr. Deb McCullough out of 
Michigan State University, amazing, amazing professor, has had an amazing career, still going strong. She showed that you could treat 10% of the trees on a rotating basis, a random 10%, and get protection across the entire landscape of the trees, yeah. which is the super- The ash mortality program, yep. Yep. Exactly. The yeah, the slam model, slow, slam. Mm-hmm. slow emerald ash borer mortality, and it works because it takes seven years for an insect to kill a tree. And I thought that was the the coolest study, the coolest kind of little simulation game that matched an ecosystem. So I ended up going back to school. I went off to UC Davis. I was working on the most economically damaging invasive aquatic weed in the world, water hyacinth and its biological control agent, a tiny little weevil called Neocatina bruchi at UC Davis uh, doing my master's. And then my PhD was focused on strawberries and how do we manipulate, and this is gets back to the manipulate organisms. That was a great lead-in show. Uh, how do we manipulate the movement and the growth of pest populations in the strawberry systems, as well as in grapes uh, in California and Napa and Sonoma? That's a fun crowd to go talk to. Usually uh, end up with a bottle of wine at the end of those lectures. Oh, yeah. And from there, I realized we needed really better data, right? So we were using all of these really interesting ideas and concepts, but the models fall apart when the data can't support the models, right? We're really trying to just represent an ecosystem with a little computer game and it doesn't always work. So I was kind of looking around California and seeing all these folks that had uh, sensors on on, uh, cars that were supposedly self-driving or at least self-hitting into things. Uh, Looked like they escaped the lab at UC Berkeley, right? Like they were just driving free in California. And I was thinking, okay, if entomological, if, if, if LIDAR exists on cars and sensors exist, there's probably something along the lines of entomological LIDAR. And so this is using a laser as a way to count and classify insects to species, to richness, which is the number of species. So I, I met some folks in Denmark and I wrote a grant and I moved out to Copenhagen, Denmark, to work with an entomological LIDAR company for wow. three years during a postdoc. And I really saw the value of these types of sensors and showed that the, the incredible efficiency, right? It was thousands of times better at getting insect data than I was in terms of like the number of insects it was seeing. It was bad at some things, right? All types of sampling, all types of sensors, they've got biases. These were not very good at spatial relations, but they were really, really good at timing. So they could provide things like early warning. We've got a paper coming out in life that shows we could actually count the number of species that were flying past without ever knowing what those species were, which is the first time anyone's ever automated insect biodiversity metrics, which is wild. And we tested it out in forests, we tested it in agland, we kind of tested it out across across the board over there with like some really cool, drastic potential uh, opportunities. But the big problem was cost. It costs like seven grand to rent one of these sensors. And you can't use just one, you need a couple. Cost seven grand to rent one for a season, just way too expensive. So then when I got this uh, this awesome opportunity to be a UW-Madison professor, uh, which is basically running a research lab, running an extension program for field and forage crops, so agronomic crops, and as well as everything we feed cattle, um, livestock, uh, as well as doing some teaching, I knew the very first thing I needed was cheap sensors. 
And I was looking around in the lab as we're working on a couple of them. Uh, and we submitted patents for this. We're getting this, this message out there. In fact, we, we've won some competitions on this idea pretty recently, which is really exciting. Uh, but I came up with this thing called the insect eavesdropper. And this relates a little bit yeah. back to forestry because this is a clip-on or a stick-on contact microphone. So think a guitar mic. They cost about $1.50 when you buy them in bulk. And you plug it into a little computer on a chip, right? So those things cost about $16. You can put four of these mics on one of the computers. And it basically presses start, stop, and save. And we can start to directly hear insect biting sounds. Now, the idea from this, it came and, you know, interrupt me whenever you want to. I could go on for hours, I'm sure. But the idea came in part from forestry because they, they're always those foresters that said that they could use a stethoscope to hear, you know, the tapping. We we actually have a guest coming on in the new year. Joe, you know, you know the guest already. And she's presented on doing exactly what you're talking about. So this is really cool. Keep, I say, keep, keep going. This is pretty neat. Yeah, that that's that's awesome. So we tr tried it out with the stethoscopes, and you know it might work with really large insects, but it doesn't work so well with really tiny insects, especially not in things like corn or tobacco or potatoes or soybeans, right? So those were the things that we were testing on in February last year. I mean, this this device is not a year old at this point. Um, but we're also kind of standing on the shoulders of giants, as in folks in the 90s were aiming $2,000 laser vibrometers at plants and measuring their vibrations, right? This is not a new idea. It's just a really cheap way of doing that new idea, that like kind of old idea. People in the 80s were putting gramophone needles on plants and listening to the tapping communication of insects, of leaf hoppers and tree hoppers. To species identity, like you can get to species this way, which is mad. It's completely wild. So we started with really large insects in a lab in like a, what we hoped was a noise proof room in, my, in like a closet in my tiny lab that I have on campus. Wasn't noise proof. That's fine. But we started with with Colorado potato beetles, which are like three fourths of an inch long to an inch long. And then we went to to manduca or tobacco hornworm, uh, tomato hornworm. Those things are giant. Those are like three four inches. Long, and we could hear the chops like really distinctly. And they had a pattern for every single bite sound that these insects made. And oh. then we took it to the really tiny things because we don't really care about the large observable insects. So we went to the things that were boring down the stalk of a corn plant, European corn borer. These are second instar larvae. Oh gosh, I looked up. It was like 12 millimeters, 15 millimeters, super itty, itty bitty. <sighs> super tiny, and we could hear those. And then we went to insects. Keep in mind, this microphone's clipped on about uh, three inches above the ground or above the soil. We started listening to things that were feeding on the root zone. This is northern corn rootworm, a diabrotica species. There are a couple of really important diabrotica species out there. And we could actually hear the insects feeding on the root zones. So we did everything we could possibly do as fast as humanly possible, right? We brought it outside. We put it, layered it on top of a pesticide trial. We tested, could we get to density by that rate of feeding? Yes. Could we hear aphids outside? Could we hear these piercing sucking insects? Yes, we could. They sound like you're slurping through a milkshake at the very bottom through a tiny straw. Oh, I need a, I need a video, a copy of that sound for my wife. 
I can I can she forward can't, you along. She can't stay when I eat because I make too much noise. I'd love to have that in the background. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's it's kind of madness what we could do. And then we could apply kind of off-the-shelf machine learning algorithms to tell you what species these things were. So just by <laughs> listening to the sound they're making while they're feeding, not flying, <sighs> not not mating, not not chirping or talking back and forth. Direct feeding, exactly. Well, they have to feed on the plant to damage the plant. So all the beneficials that are just buzzing around, hey, go buzz around. Um, exactly. I, I wrote something down that was science data-driven management practices as part <laughs> of what you do. And this is a detection method that it, it's almost as to when to treat and what not to treat is what I'm kind of, I'm trying to apply this amazing technology, you know, and, and, you know, obviously you're looking more into ag, but a tree is a crop. Uh, it could be a nursery thing. It could be uh, a, a big tree nursery. They could have these sensors around and they would know uh, like a pre-warning of a specific insect chomps three times you know that oh my god the apple the lilac board is here um, absolutely look for it very absolutely cool. and we're handing we've handed the sensor off to uh well one group and then we've we've intentions to hand it off to another group one's a usda uh ars uh research group uh out of wapato washington this is rodney cooper's group and they're testing on pears and cherry trees and they're not looking for the for the feeding, the chomping, or the piercing, sucking sounds. They're looking to help time mating disruption for these these tiny little tree hoppers and leaf hoppers that that cause diseases like cherry X disease. Where if you can hit them with a pheromone right at the time of mating, then you could really disrupt them being able to spread this disease. Where you're essentially your tolerance is zero, right? The plant gets it. The plant is. Uh, the tree is dead. It takes a very long time to replace that tree. Um, and these insects, they actually, they have this mating communication that's kind of an anti-eavesdropping communication technology or method, I guess, where they're tapping on the leaves in very specific, already known patterns. So that's what we're listening to over there, which is one really nifty potential application. Um, and the flip side is we've got intentions to work with uh, Monique Rivera out of Cornell, uh, the Ag Extension Station, um, Agritech out of Geneva, New York, and she's this amazing faculty member. They they poached her from UC Riverside, I think, uh, pretty pretty recently, and she's on apple trees. In fact, her entire position is on apple trees. I interviewed for her job and didn't get it. I'm really glad that she huh. got that one. But <laughs> on, on apple trees, she's listening to um, all sorts of boring insects come in with and without a pheromone lore. And that's where that early detection, where if you know they're there, you can make a decision, treat, don't treat. Um, oh, exactly, wait. because uh, too many times in old school practices, we apply mm. with the impression that it's gonna happen anyways. So I know that in a in a in in an apple orchard or a fruit crop orchard, there's like 20 applications a season. Even mm -hmm. if you could time or, or determine the need and eliminate half of those. You know, you think about the overall impact on the environment by eliminating applications that are just in case is absolutely truly astonishing and amazing that if we could get to that point. We're we're far, right? We're we're a couple of years away from folks that aren't researchers using this. Um we, oh, shoot, I can wait years. I'm not, you know, I'm thinking <laughs> if it's a hundred years from now, I'm like, 
Well, I hope it works. I won't know, but two years. <laughs> Shoot. I, I think I think we're about two years away from from folks actually using this. Um, we're talking, we we got a Wharf Accelerator grant, Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation Accelerator. Their plans to spin this out as a startup, which I'm not going to have very much to do with because I'm a researcher and not a business person anymore, Corey. But... <laughs> it's all good. Hey, Emily, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back a little bit Please. to when we were talking about how you got into it. What I find is amazing is that if I look at your bio, you were in entomology from the get go, kind of because you got your 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 BS, MS, MPA, it was all entomology. So it wasn't like you went in there and you got a, a business, a, a bachelor's in business and decided, I like bugs and switch. You were in entomology from the get-go. I was hooked. I was hooked early on. Um, I was very much a, a bio student or my science uh, teachers would call me a squishy student rather than a hard science student. Uh, I, I loved being outside. I was actually a venture scout, which is a co-ed version of Boy Scouts. I got like the Eagle equivalent rank over there. So I was really always kind of toying around in nature as much as I possibly could, you know, hiking. I hiked Philmont back in the day. And it wasn't that I was insect specific. I was people impact specific. Um, mm -hmm. I had an incredible, incredible opportunity in high school to take a special class called science research, which basically they sent us home one summer and they said, okay, you're the top science students in the school. You should come back and uh, think about what project you wanna work on for multiple years. And I went off and got eaten alive by mosquitoes. And then I came back and said, I'm gonna make a better bug spray. Not even knowing that bugs were, you know, a specific type of insect not even knowing anything about mosquitoes specifically. I was just, I was fed up. And that was really my gateway entrance to entomology. But mo Wait. well, most entomologists kind of choose one particular species or one particular system. I've been a generalist working on literally trees and mosquitoes and invasive aquatic weeds and strawberries and apples, uh, bed bugs once. Right. Like, Ooh. so I, I kind of span, span the realm. I think it's been really helpful as I try to think about how, I mean, fundamentally how insects are moving and changing over space and time. Those are the types of questions that are interesting. It's good well, to have all the background. I, I agree. And Joe and I could, you know, we obviously Joe and I are more focused on, on the, in the tree space. And there are different, as, as you know, and our listeners are, hopefully picking up on this. They're different, different families and categories of, of insects. And Joe and I could, you know, name a couple dozen in our areas and we can kind of give you general themes, right? Once you, once you learn enough about it, you kind of know, all right, well, all the boars are going to have this kind of life cycle and pattern. You've, are, do you see that across everything from mosquitoes to bed bugs to the Colorado potato weevil, all this? Absolutely. And as I'm, I'm teaching right now a class called Principles of Economic Entomology, and I try very hard to not teach in specific examples, but kind of make people think around the baseline knowledge of the insect so that we can start making some generalizations, right? So we know something about how mouth parts, like piercing, sucking mouth parts, or chewing mouth parts, which most insects have, which are kind of the generalized insect mouth parts. We know how that impacts different parts of a plant, 
right? We know how that causes disease or opens up an avenue for disease. We know something about the way boars start occupying spaces and, you know, kind of the mass attack behavior that you see over and over again. And the, the reason we can generalize is because insects have certain successful strategies and certain unsuccessful strategies, but because they've got such short lifespans in general, I'm not talking about cicadas, but you know, in general, it's you know, one or a couple times a year, uh, they, they, they reproduce and kind of go through a cycle. We then know that the bad strategies end up dying out. So the good strategies, the successful strategies, not good for us necessarily, but you know, good to know about for us, those ones are shown over and over and over again, sometimes in the same, I would call it evolutionary branch. So sometimes between essentially uh, cousins or sister groups of insects, sister genera, um, but sometimes they've been co-evolved separately where you have this thing called convergence, where the behavior or the anatomy worked so well that it then converged. If you think about mosquitoes and uh, bed bugs, and you think about butterflies, they all have kind of a sucking tight mouth part, and yet they're nowhere close to each other evolutionarily. Huh. In fact, different parts of their face essentially evolved to form the same function, but they converged because it was a really good strategy. And I think what, what will spur the continued research is that you mentioned how the, the human interaction with it. So probably in your class, you talk about how it affects us because there could be insects out there that we, millions of insects are out there and there's only a handful and that bother us because it bothers us. So therefore, what do you do? You research the tar out of it and you figure out a solution. Well, the rest of them go out and do their thing, mm -hmm. um, which is pretty amazing. Um, I, I do think that when we look at what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, which, which, which I'm amazed is I'm, I love insects also, but I also love um, diseases in plants because it's a lot harder to, to understand. And then you get even into parasitology and you start thinking about uh, certain factors and how things affect plants. And right now uh, a pathologist, uh, they're so hard to come by because it's so hard to figure out uh, pathology. Now I'm not, I'm not saying that, uh, being an entomologist is any easier, but I think the future needs to get into like, um, like, like micro or nanotech mm -hmm. because we don't see that affect the bigger picture. And I think that's a direction you're going. And I think it's phenomenal. And there's some, there are a lot of routes to take to do exactly that. How do we make essentially cheap detection kits and, one, one of the colleagues that I work with, uh, Lisa Nevins, who's uh, another USDA scientist, who's a journal editor-in-chief of economic entomology, uh, she's doing these COVID-type assays, right? These essentially strip or even pregnancy test-type assays where you can kind of put some DNA, in this case, she works on, on cherry trees and pear trees, and see, is the insect there or is the pathogen there? And that makes these things a heck of a lot more accessible. And it's not the direction wow. that I'm doing. I don't know anything about DNA, uh, all the genetics, all of it. that's not my thing, right? I do kind of large scale populations and sensors about populations, but it, it takes all types. And it kind of doesn't matter which, which technology wins. 
uh, as long as we as a field move forward and can make yeah. better decisions, more impactful decisions, save and, more trees. And tools that you're working on will assist them in their studies and vice versa. So Absolutely. that's the whole let's get it done together program. Absolutely. Uh, it takes all types. And and it's all related. I mean, as as you already brought up the chemistry emamectin benzoate, right? You and Joe and maybe a handful of the other listeners know is that that went under a different name, but was actually used for cash crops uh, in the nineties. So it's all related, Joe. Joe hit a big picture. Emily, you tied something together because you're like, yeah, well, insects disease it could be could be correlated. It could be vectoring. Um, as, as we're, as we're looking at this conversation and really trying to, trying to tie it in for the listeners, we're, we're at about a half hour here. Are there any other final points that you want to get across Emily to, to the people out there that are, are maybe thinking about getting into the world of bugs or, or becoming an insect eavesdrop or anything like that? Any advice you want to pass on? I would say it's super useful for me and it's super useful for you guys to have this type of connection. Right. I learned a lot about trees by hanging out with Corey back in the day. I don't know if you remember that, but I learned a lot by much by going on, going on trips, right? And kind of understanding what folks are actually seeing. Because if if folks like me can't understand the problem and the scope of the problem, and folks like like Corey can't understand the scope of the insect, then like we're talking circles around each other. We need that multi-level, multidisciplinary set of interactions. Uh, that's big. Everybody sees it from a different yeah. lens. And you know, like I said, yeah, you're looking at something at one way. And I'm I'm a, a great antagonistic um listener, especially on research projects. I'll be like, wait a minute, that ain't working. No way. And I'll raise my hand. And I was just at a tree valuation course and they kept talking. I finally raised my hand and says, Come on, really? Is this really how we're there? And they're kind of all staring at me. I says, if you guys don't want me to ask questions, just tell me. I'm okay with that. But I, you know what, just short of telling you, I think you're full of BS. I was, I was telling them, I was, I, I questioned them and they didn't like it. It's useful, right? It's useful to have feedback, right? It's useful for the, for the folks doing the evaluations. Cause I can sit in my nice little ivory tower and develop all the best sensors in the world. But if no one uses it, you know, what, what good is my life work, right? That type of thing. <laughs> not that I'm like, see, I'm, I'm yeah. not that old yet, but I, not that I'm seeing my career kind of play out, but I, I need like buy-in from other folks or else this thing's not going to be useful and not going to serve the purpose of, you know, what I'm trying to work on. Emily, thank you so much for being on the show. Is there any way or anything that you want to uh, set out there for people to either follow you on social or get in touch with you? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. I am going to look that up right now. How much I use or X, what do we call it these days? Uh, yeah. Bic underscore Emily. So at B-I-C-K underscore E-M-I-L-Y. And there's a nice picture of me and a some sensor work that I have in the background of me looking at a drone where people are dropping biocontrol out of that drone. So yeah, follow, follow me on Twitter. Uh, you can look at my website, biclab.com if you want to follow kind of the more recent updates, but reach out if you have any questions. I'm fairly accessible. Thanks awesome. for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank, oh God, thank you for coming.
Yeah. Thank you so much for the conversation. You've, you've inspired at least a a couple great conversations. So we look forward to having you on uh, the next time. Thanks, Sam. Absolutely. Hey, great topic today. Yes. And lots of good information. Yeah. Probably one of our best yet. If you enjoyed the podcast or have topics you would like to discuss, please send them to discoveringforestry at gmail.com. And please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. Thanks, guys, uh, for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Joe. And I'm Corey. Signing Signing out. out.